Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 796. Let's go over to the Nerdist Community Corkboard. Justin writes, this is not your typical corkboard submission, but I wanted to give my wife Ashley a big congratulations. She recently decided to quit her career to do what she's always wanted to do. Um, I guess she read my book. Thank you, if you were one of the people who did that. And uh, she's starting her own daycare in Portland. Uh, It's currently an in-home center. She aims to grow it to a full center where she can help young kids get an early start on their education. Uh, And they also just coincidentally use Squarespace to start their beginner website and turn it uh, turn into something that was pretty great so check it out at darlingducklingsportland.com darlingducklingsportland.com congratulations Ashley that is very fantastic that you not only are pursuing the thing that you care about but you want to educate children hold on to her Justin she is a keeper uh, also, my pals in the band Motion City Soundtrack, which I believe were Nerdist Podcast episode number two, uh, are sadly breaking up. They're going their own their, their own ways. But they're going to do a farewell tour all throughout the U.S. starting in May. Uh, and the original drummer, Tony Thaxton, who is a wonderful human being and also uh, a, a lover and, and purveyor of comedy, uh, will be back to join them on the tour. You can find tour dates and tickets by going to motioncitysoundtrack.com. This episode is Shalto Copley. Uh, Shalto is a South African performer that you have seen probably in such amazing films as District 9 or Elysium. Or he played um, an amazing Murdoch in uh, A-Team. He was fantastic. And he is uh, in Hardcore Henry, which I saw and it's fantastic. And I get, um, it's the first person shooter uh, movie, and, and I do get motion sick at stuff. Uh, but like uh, Cloverfield was very hard for me to watch because of that. But I mean the original Cloverfield. But um, this movie did not. I did not experience any of that. It and it was fantastic. And you know I, I always really liked Shalto as a as an actor. But I had no idea how much of a creator this guy was. Uh, so you you he was like you know largely responsible for District Nine for movies like District Nine. So. Uh, he has a really fascinating story, and he was a super cool guy, and uh, he is just at Shalto on Twitter, which is spelled S-H-A-R-L-T-O. So if you've ever seen his name, and you're like, is it Charlto Copley? No, Shalto, shawl, like shawl, like you put on a shawl, Shalto Copley, Shalto Copley. Um, really, really, really terrific guy, and I'm excited that you're going to get to meet him through the podcast. And if you joined us at WonderCon this past weekend in Los Angeles, I, you know, I liked WonderCon in, in Los Angeles, mainly because it was really easy to get to for me, but, uh, and I, I approach things selfishly in that way, but it, the, our panel was really amazing. It was in the same theater where the, they do the Emmys, and, uh, and, and it was full, like people showed up, and uh, we had an amazing booth, and we, we did some great stuff with Geek and Sundry. 
So thank you if you came out to that. Saw a guy in the best Thanos cosplay I've ever seen. I posted it on Instagram at Hardwick. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, and, and I want to thank you if you watch Critical Role. Um, I played a character called Gern Blanson on Critical Role, which is on Geek and Sundry. My friend Matt Mercer. It's a it's a it's a live streaming, uh, basically a D and D campaign that was so much friggin' fun. So hashtag Feel the Gern. Hashtag where's my broom? That'll mean a lot to you if you watch it, but it was super fun. And season finale, we're off at midnight this week. Season finale of Walking Dead Sunday, uh, the 3rd of April. But then the following week, we roll into Fear. We're going to do Talking Dead for Fear, The Walking Dead. So very stressed about this upcoming episode Sunday. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but we'll hold hands together that day when it happens. Uh, our guests will be Norman Reedus and Robert Kirkman and uh, also Scott Gimple. So here we go. Thanks so much. Here's the Nerdist Podcast number 796 with Shalto Copley. Now entering Nerdist.com. talking about the trailer for hardcore watching it in the cinema like i asked him how it played you know in the cinema i bet it's amazing in the yeah. cinema with with an audience you know because obviously i mean i've seen it on big screens or whatever but i've never i've never watched the trailer like but with an audience before a movie so i was just curious did you feel do you get motion sick did it give you did watching it did you get did Me? you feel motiony at all no because i've always i'm a little bit cautious of that stuff and a funny thing both Ilya and i I was very sort of kind of motion sick sensitive to movies. So when people are like online writing like, uh, you know, I'm going to get motion sick to movie. I'm like, dude, we've been thinking about that for a long time. Like, the, the, you know, since we, since we conceived of making the film. Um, and the critical aspect of that is where you sit in the cinema. As long as you sit from the middle to the back, you know, even the most queasy of people. If you really get motion sick and you sit in the back row, you know, the film is not going to make you throw up. I mean, the trailer is pretty spectacular, and it—the fact that it has twelve or thirteen million views, and the number of thumbs up. There's like, mm. I mean, every YouTube video is it thirty million now? You're over thirty yeah. now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ! No, it's been crazy, bro. And like when we when we did the Indiegogo campaign, we've we've had a total, we've had over forty million views on various because we were monitoring it on like three or four different platforms uh, for that one sequence that we released. We released way back the sequence with the colonel. Saving the cripple, mm-hmm. as it's called, <laughs> and uh, uh, that that did over over forty million at that back then. So there's there's been quite a big response to it the whole way through. Holy shit, that's pretty crazy. I mean, you it's you just never know. You just never know Don't. when you when you sit down and you make something. You can't. There, there's no. Was there any part of you that thought? Well, of course, this is going to be the next big giant thing. Or you're like, I don't know. I guess we'll just put it. It out. was it was very much to be honest. This you know. The feeling of my, my my experience of making this movie was the closest of what I'd had to District Nine, where it was something that you knew was going to be different, that you were going to push the boundaries. Uh, this was even more grassroots in the sense. On D Nine, we had Peter Jackson. We were outside right. the system, but we had Pete's name. Uh, in this case, it was like we're going to have like a tiny amount of money, and we just know that there are people who want us to make this film. 
and as soon as people even heard that a film was being made, there was there was a vocal response online. You know, often from gamers, or, sure. you know, just sort of film geeks saying, "Please make that. I just want to see what that would be like." And that was for us too to be like, "Wouldn't it be interesting?" And originally, Ilya said no when Timur Beckman, better for the producer, saw his short film, I'm sure saw his music video, mm-hmm. "Bad Motherfucker," and said make a movie on this and Ilya was like no like why would I do that and then a week later Timor called him again and said wouldn't you want to see a first person action movie like a good one in the cinema wouldn't that be interesting to you as an experience and Ilya's like actually it would (laughs) let's try and make it that's the best reason to ever make anything because it doesn't exist and you want to see it it was just like let's see if we could do it and so my that was my whole mindset getting involved too was very much like back to my kind of filmmaking roots. I knew this was always going this was going to kind of be like going back to film school and it was going to be incredibly difficult and it was. You don't have enough money, you don't have enough time. Um, and as you go, you're trying to prove to people that you sort of winning each boundary. Sure. You know, it's like I went back to Russia three different times, you know, to finish the movie. Oh my god. I mean, District 9 was one of those films that it, every so often a movie comes along that just sort of shifts the way things mm. are done mm. and District 9 was one yeah. of cuz I remember it was right I th- I'm pretty sure there was a Transformers movie coming out around the same time. It's like, okay, these guys made District 9 with yeah. almost no money. And then tra- you got no excuse, Transformers. <laughs> you got no fucking excuse. Like, I, I actually got mm. mad at Transformers. Like, look what they did with District 9. Look what they did with District 9. <laughs> yeah. And that was, I think, you know, to answer your question more directly about did you, what did you think the response would be, you know, when you looked at it. It was like I knew there was spectacle there and a big – Part of getting people to go to cinemas right now is some sort of spectacle, sure. some reason why it's an event. That they why have you, to leave their yes, house. Yes, why must you leave your house? Right? Screens are big. A lot of people have big screens. You can watch it. You can listen on headphones. You've got a cheap surround sound for a lot of systems. Um, and this was something where I was like, you know what? If I was in high school or in college or something, this is the kind of thing that I would have wanted to go with my buddies you know, and it's you know you're gonna remember this experience. The film is gonna kind of assault you like a rail like a roller coaster <laughs> does, you know. But you will and you will and it's an experience. It's something that you're going to uh, remember, you know. Um and and so I felt and I personally as an actor I was very interested because obviously the action sequences worked. So, sure. so you knew that from watching the music video. It was like, well the action's gonna be incredible. But what would what would it be like to watch an actor acting with you, with you as the audience. I mean, that perspective is so familiar to so many people now. Mm. Because I mean, you know, most, most people in the age of 25 don't even have any type of cable. Or, you know, they have yes. video games and they have Correct. whatever sort of digital platforms they watch their, their stuff on. But um, just it, I, it makes me wonder, like, when I was young, if someone had made a film that was all like Atari – yeah. I probably would have gone to see it because I would want to see that. It's kind of just like little squares flying. Yeah, around. it's kind of there's a generational aspect to the film too, which I, I was very cognizant of that going in. In the sense that you know I love the franchise movies as much as the next guy, but a lot of the things you watch nowadays that are, that kids are watching, these were things that were created before you were born. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like oh great, you know your favorite movie is the same as your dad's. Right. This is definitely something where it's like probably not going to be the same as your no. as your dad's or your mom's. This is very much something from this generation. Yeah. And I was keen to try to be involved in that. Try to do something for this generation to kind of go like, hey, we also have something to say. You know, yes, we got to see Star Wars, but actually. You know, this is more us. 
this could be your Star Wars yeah, if you're exactly, a kid and you exactly, see this for the exactly. first time. It's you're very like, much in the storytelling vernacular of what. Yeah, of it's how reflective of my generation of pop culture, you know. And I'm just on the cusp of that. I'm just on the leading edge. I've played FPS games, and I, you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you and anyone sort of younger than me, this is this is very much your pop culture references that you'll see throughout the film. I think people will be lucky that this movie was made by you guys and that it wasn't, you know, a big studio going, ah, we should, uh, kids are playing these mm. uh, fucking mm. games. We got to make a movie that yeah. the kids, yeah. I mean, you know, that it came from such a an organic place of, oh, this is something that we love and we'd really love to see and that it actually grew as a passion project, correct. As opposed to a commerce project, correct. It was it was absolutely that. Uh, it was absolutely a passion project, and it was. I mentioned the term grassroots earlier. You know, once people heard that we were making a film in the style of Bad Motherfucker, there was a lot of online guys that came on and just went, "Please make this fucking movie. I need to see this before I die." You know, and so there was a, there was an enormous amount of, funnily enough, pressure. You know. In the sense of not wanting to let those people down. Yeah, they'll let you know if they're not happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And and so when it came to – like I jumped on knowing we don't have enough money to make this film. You know, We have enough money to prove that we can do certain things right and to experiment and to explore. And so we kept going and at each sort of step we were able to convince people to give us a little bit more money. We really had the shoestring and and – uh, to, and by the end, we needed finishing funds, and we did the Indiegogo campaign. Mm-hmm. And both Ilya and I, there was a discussion about whether we should do it up front, and we were like, no, we really need to have something that we really feel proud of for the people that wanted us to make it before we go and ask on Indiegogo because a lot of people ask for money and they just make shit. Sure. You know? And so I really, especially for me, I, I didn't – and very much for Ilya too. We, we just didn't want to go and ask for money for something that we felt was going to let people down. Yeah. When you, I, mean, I do know a few basic facts about you, uh, but there's there's huge gaps that I'm so fascinated to find out more about. If you don't mind, if I sure. poke around a little bit, please. You're one of those guys that when when I see you on screen, I go, whatever that guy's involved with is probably interesting. Mm-hmm. There's something about the stuff that you get involved with, even. I even loved you as Murdoch. Like you were a fucking great Murdoch, and it took me. It took a while before I realized, like, oh, that's the guy from District Nine. Like, yeah. it, I didn't even put the pieces together right away. But District Nine, um, I know, I know that you and Neil Blomkamp met when you were like twenty-two or yes, so. Yes. But then District Nine didn't come out till you were around thirty-five. Yes. So what? What were you doing in that thirteen years? Man, a lot of stuff. I, I actually started a television channel in South Africa, would you believe, with, with Warner Brothers. I was one of the key founders of the first free-to-air terrestrial television Holy station shit. there. Neil was going to actually come back to South Africa because he emigrated when he was uh, still in high school, in his last year of high school with his family. Um, and so I'd, I was – although I'd made films and acted a lot when I was a kid, I decided I wanted to be behind the camera. I'd have more control and part of the reason of starting the TV channel was just to make content. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up with a production company and a visual effects house and a talent agency. So I'd, I'd worked in all of those sort of uh, capacities, if you will. Jesus. But it- and I directed music videos. I directed, uh, I directed uh, uh, commercials and music videos. The, the little information that I have about the people, the, the performers that have – uh, made it over to the states from South Africa. It very much seems like it. I get the sense of like you got to do whatever you need to do to make the shit work. It's true, and that was very much 
essential to this film. And it was the same ethos that the Russians had, the Russian crew had, that Ilya had. It was this young, hungry Russian crew that was very much like, we want to show the world what we can do here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a changing time in Russia, and you've got this young generation of creative people. Uh, it was fascinating going over there and sort of seeing, struggling to connect with the older generation, you know, feeling like I was on Mars in some ways. And then when I was on the set, just feeling like, well, okay, you know. Only four of these people can talk to me and speak English, but I know the others creatively. We know each other. You know, it was a strange creative connection with people where there was just this language barrier. Um, but culturally, creatively, you you artists and you're trying to make something unique and you need to be able to be a jack of all trades and, you know, try things that are impossible or, is, or seem impossible to other people. Is that South African culture? Because especially like Word is a, yeah. another like – Oh, you know, he they just figured out that like they they were these kind of this holistic artist experience. It's like they're making music and they're making the films and they're yeah. marketing it and they're doing everything. Is that do you think that's a do you think that's a part of uh, a, your sliver of South African culture or is that just a random coincidence? It's probably both. I think it's probably a, a product of the situation and the fact that the society is more, you know, South Africa was a powerful country because it had minerals. So the business mindset is like mining. Mm-hmm. So there's not, a, there's not a lot of support for artists. So you have to support yourself. And the artists that will get through are typically more multifaceted. They artists that can manage their own bank accounts like just that is fascinating to me and in, in los angeles as you come here and then suddenly there's a business manager and a lawyer and all these people are controlling your money and your business affairs and i'm like whoa 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 like i want to see that the studio paid me that check right you know? right like that's how i grew up <laughs> no no they paid you sure yeah yeah yeah. they're like no no you're doing fine and you still yeah. have us like whoa whoa like hang on man geez i that's okay i can handle that shit are you, you know? sure because yeah. if you just sign this we'll just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We'll just, just yeah, yeah, yeah just sign the contract i'm like no no i'm actually gonna read the contract i'll read it and then i'll tell you what clauses i like or don't like you know but don't you think that's what's one of the things that's so great about achieving the majority of your success after 35 is that you have the wisdom and you have the experience and you're you know at that like yeah if you had just blown up at 22 yeah i think it's difficult for those guys yeah i think they get they get sort of exploited they just sort of by default you know probably yeah. more. yeah are you mentoring uh anyone back home I mean, not not consciously. I have young people that work for me, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, I teach stuff to, I suppose, as we go. Um, but, uh, and, and kind of, I feel like we more learn a lot of stuff together, to be yeah. honest. When someone asks you, what do you do, what do you say? It took me a while to say actor, like on the <laughs> forms, you know. Nowadays, I just write that because it's easier, but um, I... Especially now, like I'm definitely going into more of the, the actor, director, producer roles. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be more in control of what I'm doing. This was a project for me that was very reminiscent of District 9 for a lot of reasons, not least of which was that I had an enormous amount of creative input and influence on the film. You know, there isn't another film I've done where I had that much influence. These two films, District 9 and Hardcore, hands down. You know, are things where I could bring an enormous amount to the film. Uh, the whole tone of Hardcore Henry, for example, was like Ilya had originally planned to do, or in his head, he saw the film, I think, a lot more seriously, like a real artistic. He was working on like a slow burn sci fi, I mean, um, spy thriller that mm-hmm. he was going to make as a very serious filmmaker. And so when I sent him the tests of what I wanted to do with the character, I was like, this is the tone that I think it would need to be. 
we had a huge kind of several days of conversation and debate and I was like look this is the only way I'm prepared to do this film is like with a fun tone that this is a fun ride if it's pretentious and it takes itself seriously like I don't want to do it um and he came around to that very much and was, uh, you know, by the end. And, and on that basis, I agreed to do the movie. Um, but it wasn't a standard actor-director relationship. It was extremely collaborative, you know. And how did you – so you mentioned that language before where you said, you know, only a few people you even could communicate with through words. Yes, yes. So how did you find that? Because obviously – you know, words are just one part of language. There's cultural language. There's body language is different. Yes. Like, how do you? So, how are you communicating your very specific ideas in that uh, in that situation? Well, Ilya grew up. You know, he went to school in London, and so he's he's got a very Western creative sensibility. Obviously, his English is great. Mm-hmm. He, he's and so he was really the only guy I needed to be able to communicate with, if that makes sense. And yeah, he would yeah. communicate that. He would communicate whatever we needed to communicate together to the rest of the team. Yeah. Do you see this as uh, – because it, it, it seems like to me that you're very aspirational and that you go, oh, well, I, if we need this, let's just make this thing. Do you see yourself – launching a studio at some point making these types of movies it's funny you say that because the more that i go around and i meet outlets like you guys and i I meet people that are uh what i believe is the new generation of what this industry is going to look like like the studio system and the and the broadcasters i really think that system is going to change Mm -hmm. drastically i think the new studios are the kind of guys that are getting behind these this sort of film i think so i think i would be too just too tempted, especially now watching, you know, part of why I did this was a sort of a frustration in the existing system. Yeah. Um, where I just said, look, it's a big risk, but it's an educated risk. And uh, if I can be more involved and I can have more control of what's happening, then I'll do the movie. I mean, you, you could be getting to this, but it sounds like you've had experience of this before, but getting to the crossroads between having to be a manager and having yeah. to be an artist yeah. at the same time. And how do you balance those two? I think it's it's for me it's not really a manager as much as in my head it's a producer and a directing kind of it's a it's a they they do for me go together because if you don't if you're not able to uh, effectively manage yourself as a creative artist I think most you know one of the biggest surprises for me was when I came across when I came into Hollywood and I met these very high level A list actors you know it was like these people are not where they are by mistake. Right. There wasn't just like, hey, they're really talented and then people just jumped on them and just, you know, sucked the life out of them. They really <laughs> – the reason they go in to go and talk at the United Nations and whatever is, is they actually are leaders, most of them, in certain ways. Sure. Um, they're smart people that are able to manage their own careers, make smart choices. Certainly that's how you stay in the business over a period of time. Right. I don't think you can stay in, in, in it for a very long time if you don't know how to manage. I, I 100% agree. And sometimes when you you see someone that kind of flashes a little bit, you go, whatever happened to that person? Mm. You start learning more about their personal life. You go, oh, they happened they to They probably them. didn't have they... that other side where <laughs> yeah. they can command an army and just keep going. You know? <laughs> that was a, fu- a fundamental thing, by the way, with Ilya, where I was like, I wanted to know, okay, he's creative and he did something, but does this guy actually have the sheer force of will you're going to need to survive what this is going to be. Yeah. You know, and he, he was, he, we, we laugh about it now. It was one of the things that this process could have broken us, you know, or turned us into like really strong collaborators. And thankfully it's been the latter. Yeah. Um, incredible relationship that we have. 
but you know he was like I'm gonna make this movie and it's gonna be done by the end of the year and I was like no you're not <laughs> no you're not dude. you know and he's like no no Shalta really I've got this and we've thought about it and this and that and I'm like there's just no way you're just not um, but I accepted that and I, I, I liked his sheer determination to die trying you know what I mean I was like but you have the right you're wrong but you have the right attitude and so therefore I'm gonna go to war with you and to his credit you know as soon as he realized he was wrong he's like yeah, fuck I was wrong <laughs> you know? but here we go we're marching on but I'm not gonna fucking lose well I think you know? what's so I, I, I think when, when something like this comes along and people respond to it I think there's another element that people are getting even subconsciously which is they can feel the spirit of the the spirit of how the movie is made is kind of the movie. Like you, yes. you, you guys are coming into this. There is sort of a, a hardcore element, to, and and you're fighting every inch of the way to get it made. I mean, the, the word hardcore is so appropriate for the film. You know, it's in every sense it was the hardest movie I've ever made. It breaks so many rules of traditional filmmaking, and it. Uh, it you can I think what was surprising to me to a certain degree I thought a lot of the critics would be harder on us because it's such a different film but mm-hmm. I think critics have taken that to heart so far even mainstream critics even if it's not for you you know a lot of critics are like it's not for me but my kids are gonna fucking love this of course you know and so it sort of commands a respect I think because it was so legitimate and it was so for example every stunt in the film is actually really done for real (laughs) you know when you see a guy standing on top of a van and throwing a grenade in like you see in the trailer and the van blows up underneath him that's done for real he's on a crane obviously to lift him and the, the car explodes underneath him as a crane lifts him off on a wire and puts him down on a speeding motorbike next to him you know it's it's there's no like green screen and you comp the hands and feet in or something every single one of these stunts uh were done for real and so if you know anything about film, like understanding how hard that is, like for a critic who actually knows about film to go and diss this movie, it's like, dude, the fundamental art, you know, art of, of uh, one of the fundamentals of stunt coordination is knowing where to put the camera and being able to make what is basically a shitty looking action sequence from one point of view look amazing because you've got 12 cameras on it or four and you cut, you, cut it, you, know, you cut it to shit as you're watching it and it suddenly it looks horrible. This is telling a stunt coordinator, you have one camera angle. It's this, you know. Design it from from that point of view, and you're telling stuntmen, which you know stunts is a very specific thing. Guys going to get set on fire, fall out, you know, dive out of a bus, smash through glass. When stuntmen do that job, they get into like a zen place before they go. If you watch good stunt guys, you know, they just focus on what they have to do. They zoning out everything else. Now you're like, listen, while you do that, wear this camera. Remember once you set on fire to film the other two guys over there who also set on fire. (laughs) Then jump through the window, break the window. Don't smash the GoPro, please, because you'll blow the take. This all has to happen in one take. Land on the ground. Go put yourself out. Then remember to turn back and film the other two guys coming out of the bus set on fire. And we're going to do all of that in one take. What that demands of a stuntman is ridiculous, you know? So it's like if you come and you shit on the movie, it's like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you know what, fuck you. Because, yeah. you know, you got to try to do that. You know, yes, it's, you can't measure the movie You're on traditional. You're sitting at your keyboard typing. Yeah, you, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't measure the movie on traditional uh, uh, terms. You know, this is a film that's rewritten its own terms. It's an event in the cinema. I, I always refer to it as something between a cross between a, a theme park ride and a movie and a video game. Yeah. Do you think – were there a lot of shots that are ju- were just one take in the movie? A lot of shots. You know, it, it, funnily enough, this is one of those first-time director things where Ilya was like 
yeah, so I'm going to, tr- you know, I really want it to be as much one continuous shot as possible. You know, I really don't want to cut. And I'm like, dude, you're going to cut. I promise you. He's like, yes, but I think I really can. I'm like, dude, fuck off. You're going to have to cut, you know. But, but, but still, but still, you know, we would run these sequences, which are now cut, you know, very quickly on. He acknowledged that and we realized, okay, we're going to have to. But we still try to shoot them as much as possible in one go. Oh, we would shit. spend one day just doing one sequence. You know, some takes were six, seven minutes long and it's driving around in Russia, you know, and it's coordinating stuff that has to happen. And so there was an incredibly loose improvisa- improvisational element, but we would have to then improv something and work out stuff and then stick to it because there was all sorts of uh, physical cues that were happening and stunt cues that were happening. Uh, perhaps... Not perhaps, definitely unnecessarily. I think if we if we did it over, we would be less hard on ourselves in terms of trying to get as much done in one take. But that drove you. I mean, that was it the really fire. Did. That was the fire. On, on it really your did. Feet. Yeah, I think it's a. I, I think it's such a good time for a movie like this to come out because, I mean, I, I don't. You know, I'm not someone who's anti remake or anti reboot yeah. or anti reappropriation of IP, but there's so much of it now that. When something so I, – I feel like there's such a window for really original content because I think it's a nice breather for people who are like, yeah, yeah, there's like 10 things coming out this year that I already know yeah. what that is. And yes. I've already seen that before. Yes. This is an entirely new thing and that's refreshing. Yes, it's, it's great to as an actor be able to say – this movie is unlike anything you've ever seen and know that it's just going to back that up. I can't say you're going to like it, but it's like, it's, 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 it's going to be different. Yeah. And, and, and most people so far that have seen the movie come out and just go, I, I, it, it absolutely rocked my world, you know? So that's, you know, you can't ask for anything more. Uh, I read that you, and I'm sure you've told this a million times before, so I apologize, that you improvised District 9, that you essentially just improvised. Yes, your way that is correct, 100%, every single line. So w- yeah. with a movie that was such a well-crafted story, mm. how did you keep tra- track of what was happening and what you were saying and the choices that you were making? I mean, there were several things that I did. I Because I come from behind the camera again and being able to write, uh, it was very important to track uh, the progression, for example, the emotion progression. I actually made a Excel spreadsheet where I designed a system, a numerical system, which is bizarre because it's the complete opposite of improv where you have to be <laughs> completely in the moment. But I, I knew what the scenes were going to be overall in the film. And so I tracked, I can't remember all of them, but it was like his level of sickness because he also gets sick and then he starts getting stronger as mm-hmm. he's becoming alien, for example. And I made a system from one to five, and I said, like, okay, so if the angriest he's ever going to be in the for this character would be five, you know, and the least would be one. In w- what level of anger is he right over here? And his level of sickness over here. And I think the other was like general intensity or something. Oh my god! And I had a numerical system, and I literally had a graph for the movie on like which scenes were going to peak emotionally, in in terms of intensity, how much I had to go. Uh, you know, we had, I knew we had good setups for the scenes, but like how deep it went, how much heart there was going to be, how much uh, honesty there was going to be, how much raw kind of emotion there was going to be was left to me to, to work out and to bring. Um, and so that system would help me just have some sort of framework of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, 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 that I could follow as we were obviously shooting everything out of sequence. We also, what I did was I ran because of my collaborative kind of relationship with Neil, he let me run rehearsals that I would do without him there at all. It just We just had a camera guy filming, and uh, I would lead 
the other key actors in the key scenes. There were about five of them that needed to happen. And we played around extensively with our characters and with things that could happen in the scene to try to craft what the scene would essentially feel like and what would be there. So when we came on the day, we had some we had ideas. Very often, incredibly, I thought we were going to stick to that very close. We, we would throw that out quite a lot as well. But we definitely had a template having played with the scene several times and maybe we did five takes and then I would co- go with Neil afterwards and I'd sit and I'd say, you know, we, we, we came across this idea or this thing that I think could really work. Um, just little ideas that happen in the film, like, you know, that the things that have made it into the edit. I mean, there's so much stuff that isn't, you know, like the the fact that if he just touches the page, that's the signature. You know, he put his scroll on there, whatever. That would just come out in one of the improv sessions in the rehearsals and then we'd just be like, okay, so that's an important thing, you know. Um, it was, a, it was a unique creative experience, that's for sure. I mean, a performance matrix is such an interesting idea to create. Mm-hmm. It's like these are all the boundaries of where, yes. this, where this guy is. But you're also yeah. – so much of it is, you know, how is, how, how is matching the CG and all of the other stuff mm-hmm. that you're not seeing when you're mm-hmm. there? Like how is that being managed and how are you integrating that with all the stuff that was it was It was because the, – the, the reason we could make that film I think was because of the kind of mul- – exactly the thing you were talking about with, with people from South Africa and you know a lot of other countries I think too having to be multi-skilled. And so I, I had had one of the biggest visual effects companies in South Africa. So I knew about visual effects. So while I was improvising, I knew like if I walk this way around the desk, I just bone them on like rotoing. Or versus this way. You know, I just cost us another five grand on like <laughs> Roto Art. You know what I mean? Right. So there was just an awareness. The DOP of the movie had directed his own film and edited his own film. So it was like between myself, Neil, and the DOP, we had a sense of what we were dealing with. We were skilled enough in the various disciplines. We'd all made our own stuff. We'd all sound mixed it and visual effects it and comped it and whatever. So there was a constant as you adapting and you improvising things and working out stuff on the day. Um, you know, you, I would know whether to be able to go, okay, go, 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 go. We'll just, I know kind of where the alien's eyes are going to be. You just match him to me. You don't have to, you know, in this shot, you have to show me where he's going to be or in this shot, just, just go. And we'll just, I know he's kind of about there. And from this angle, the shot's going to work, you know, so we could, so we could kind of run and gun it as it were. And there was a very similar aspect with action on this film. Ilya had already made bad motherfuckers and he took the same team. That was one thing that gave me a lot of confidence. So these guys could improvise. I mean, you know, they're, they're not the same rules in Russia as they are here, you know, in a lot of different ways. And that was very beneficial to the film. It made it incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, there would be stuff like, you know, the scene in the trailer where they're running over the bridge, right? right? So that was just they're driving to set one day, and one of the guys goes, oh, remember when we used to run over here, you know, as kids? And Ilya's like, uh, really? W- would you like to do it now? And the guys are like, yeah, yeah, we can do that in the, in the platform shoes of the character while it's raining with the GoPro on. It's like, yes, we do it. And they run, and they just quickly went and did the scene quickly, you know? And the guy slips and falls. He's dead. There's no, like, wires. There's no in that particular scene. Um but the pressure of that meant that you had to work with people who knew what they were doing. And there was nothing, you know, there's not some safety railing that's going to just be put up and somebody else is responsible for you being safe. You guys are responsible for keeping each other safe. And so that was the culture that sort of started to develop. Everybody was just on a little bit more a heightened state of awareness because so many days somebody could die, right. literally. It literally, hands down, was the most dangerous. There were days where I was shitting myself. Like, <laughs> I'm going to get hurt. Someone's going to die here. 
incredibly, we only had five, I think it was five or six stitches and a chipped tooth at the end of 85 Sunset, <laughs> which is a better record than basically any other action film I've done. Kind of a badge of honor at the yeah. same time yeah. that you guys survived it through. But as a, as a performer, as an actor... I almost kind of wonder, was, was that ever something that you thought you wanted to do or just like, ah, fuck, I'll just do it because I, I know what needs to be done and I'll just do it so that it, it gets done right? I had wanted to be an actor from about the age of like 9 to 18. I really did. I, I, I really thought I wanted to be an actor. And then I realized that I would be like entering a lottery. And so I would have to make my own stuff. And in that process, and also in the process of making the stuff, I thought, well, I'd rather be on the side that has the control you know, than be at the mercy of other people. Sure. And one of the reasons I abandoned acting was also in South Africa, the kind of media control structure at the time were people that I just didn't respect at all. They were, most of what they were making was really shit. It, had been, it hadn't been since like The Gods Must Be Crazy that a South African right. movie really had me, which happens to be the first movie I ever saw, hilariously enough. Oh, but, really? Yeah. But, um, you know, so, so also there I was like, well, I'm not going to go and audition for people where I'm like, dude, but I actually think you suck. <laughs> you know, it would be different if I'd been growing up in L.A. But uh, actually, I think you would have felt the same way. But yeah, I think maybe, maybe. <laughs> most, most of us just go. <laughs> no, 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 I, I wouldn't. I I wouldn't. No, no, I know I wouldn't because oh, this my heroes were here. You know? I know, but there's a lot of that shit. Yeah. There's a lot of that shit. But this, but what, but this thing you're describing about just, and I say this on the podcast all the time: just go out and make your thing. I say it yeah. a million times. People are sick of hearing it, but I keep saying it until everyone fucking does it. But it, it's. I think internet culture recognizes internet culture, and yes. so when people see the trailer for this, they go, yeah. "Oh, that's hard to do. That's special." That's superlative in five different ways. It's the most incredible, the best, the most ingenious way to – and so I think, I, I think that's also largely why the spirit of it I think was so embraced by, by this culture as well because they recognize it as special. There's a generational thing again you know, where you're just trying to be – and that's the pressure for me is really – there's a lot of people where I honestly don't give a shit what they think or what they say about the movie. But for that, for those people – you know, where it's like, hey, this is kind of, this is us, you know, this is kind of our thing, you know, we're making it for you guys, Yeah. you know, and it's kind of blood, sweat and tears and you really just hope they enjoy it. And then when they do and support you as is happening and guys like this, you know, like being on, on, on this with you is uh, we can't do it without you. We literally cannot. The system won't let us do it. The system kind of shits itself for this. It really does. It's like, <gasps> you know, put the embargo on the reviews because, you know, maybe they kill us. Right. And, they, and, and it's nice that there's actually the power for the audience to actually have a little bit of control. Right. Um, and in response to that, the studio is just like, well, I will spend $200 million. Fuck you. You'll go. You know what I mean? Right. Like that is sort of energetically, there's a little bit of that. That's still a crapshoot, though. This, like- is, this is true. But, and this is more like you, you sort of just hoping that, that people get behind you and, and, uh, and, and support you and, and, and give it a crack. Yeah. It, what is it about – because you clearly approach things very methodically, and it seems like, at least from what you've described – you sort of look at any situation and go, okay, this is a puzzle and I'm going to solve this and here's how I'm going to mm. solve this. Did you, was that learned behavior or is that genetic in some way or how did you, how did you develop think, that skill? I think that's probably just both. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's from experiences in South Africa, problem solving, having to just try and do things. I mean, I, I was able to start a television channel at 24. I, I tried to do that from 19. That was kind of the advantage of being in a place like South Africa, where it was just the Wild West. You know, at the time they were they were giving out licenses. They weren't private free to terrestrial licenses, so it was like 
hey, man, I could try that. Where here it would just feel utterly daunting for a 19-year-old kid to be like, I'm going to start a TV channel. It wouldn't now, funnily enough. Of course. Because you can now do it on, like, YouTube. But at that time, it was impossible. It was like the broadcasters had the distribution. There was nothing you could do. As a kid now, I would have been somebody with a YouTube channel that maybe hopefully would have become a YouTube studio. You know, that would have been an absolute dream for me. So I, I, I think it's incredible now that people are doing that. It's- what it was what, What's something that you did along the way, like one of those types of things that – you when you got into it, you were like, "Oh yeah, this is uh, this is impossible." I don't. This is actually not something that I think is is achievable or something that surprised you. I never had that as a kid. I always had the belief that I could do it. Like it's a, now, I was thinking, you know, if a kid came to me and said he was going to start a TV channel, you know, in that same situation without YouTube or with these open things, I'd be like, "Dude, you you crazy?" You know. <laughs> now I'm much more jaded. <laughs> I had the, I just had the raw belief that it was possible. Was that your family? Did, was your family super supportive? Probably, in that way? yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were always very supportive and very trusting. You know, I had. Uh, it was a sort of thing like my dad would let – I just got my driver's license and my dad would let me drive because you, you can drive at 18 in, in South Africa. And then I remember the year after that, I'm, I'm still 18, and my dad would just let me drive our whole family uh, on icy roads in, in, <laughs> when we went snow skiing in America. I'd never driven on icy roads. I grew up in South Africa. It doesn't get cold there. you know. Um, but he would just trust that like, yeah, you can handle it. you know. And then I would drive carefully. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of uh, – it's uh, it's it's that thing when when the responsibility is on you. I always found that interesting as a leader or creatively. You know, creatively people are always like, you know, the studio doesn't let me do, or the financiers are being so difficult and they want to do. It's like I, if I'm on that other side, I'm like, okay, you know, yeah, you go and make what you what you want. Um, but if it doesn't work, like you're finished, you right. realize, like, you really you sure you want that? <laughs> yeah, we'll sign the check. But, you know, in my experience, it can go wrong. You know, you know that, that to me is a way to lead creative people is to put the responsibility back on them. Yeah, you obviously felt from a very young age that your parents trusted you. And yes. that, I guess, in some way must have helped you trust yes, yourself. Correct. Uh, when do you ever get? Do you have strong gut feelings about things, or what do you do when you get on the fence about? Oh, we could do this, or we could do that. I don't. I don't really know. It's horrible. The the more you know, the projects I've done where I where my initial gut feeling was don't do it, you know, and then I argue myself into it, or my agents or somebody argues me into it. It never worked, and then like with this one, this was fascinating because my instant gut feeling was do this, <laughs> and then along the way. You know, then there was the tone problem with 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 Ilias seeing it very differently tonally at at the very outset, and so I really I, I was really like, am I wrong here? You know, should I do? And then I just I was like, listen, dude, I'll only do it under the you know these conditions. Otherwise, you know, basically walked away from it, um, following the gut instinct there. So, yeah, most of the time my my uh, my my gut instinct has has served me. But it's a difficult thing to know what that is. I think you've also got to really listen. The amazing thing about Ilya is he's a he's fantastic at listening to people and really wanting to hear, but then being crystal clear, directed dictator style. You know, like I know what I'm doing um, when he's when he's sure. But he listens and talks about. At the end of each day, he would gather the whole crew around to watch what we'd done. And again, not since District Nine have I had a feeling on the crew that they are so committed to what they're doing. You know, that they are personally, it's not just a job. This is something that they are passionate about, they believe in. Um, and so we would watch 
the results from the end of the day with the whole crew and it would we would talk about what was working what wouldn't he would ask them he would ask crew like did you like this or did you like that like he would just anybody he would ask their opinion just to kind of keep track as we were going like what do we and we would talk and argue and debate and kind of like you know, I'm like, dude, you're moving the camera too much. Just slow it a little bit down, please, for, like, guys that are 40. I mean, like, just fuck you, man. Like, you can, can't you just slow it down a little bit more? And he's like, no, it has to stay visceral. I'm like, fuck, really? Like, how much audience are we losing? Like, can't we just, I mean, I don't know. Like, when I sit down, my head doesn't move that much. You know, like, those kind of little debates. Um, and uh, and uh, but we got a, we got a great balance between us. What do you think is the most important trait for good leadership? Hmm. Uh, it's funny that you ask me that because it's it's probably simply a dominant personality type. I wish I could say something more intellectual or smart, and I think I think. Uh, uh, because you can't even lead if you don't have the right personality type. You can be as smart as hell. There's just certain personalities that lead. Then you, you come into like being able to listen, you know, I think is important. But if you don't, you're not even in the game as a leader if your personality doesn't allow you to be somebody that people just sort of innately want to follow. Yeah. I had that since I was eight. I was able to just people, my friends followed me doing stuff, you know, for better and worse. And and the ability to keep – so then from there, I think the ability to keep learning yourself as a leader. You look at some of the best leaders in the world, and they talk about that. You know, at 40, I thought I knew what I was doing, and then at 50, I thought – and then I'm 60. I knew. You know, there's a reason why the world is led by the older men. There really is. As much as there's a whole youth re revolution and everything else, there is a reason why when it really comes down to it, the guys, the best leaders in the world are typically older. Right, you know, because they learn and they keep learning, and probably the 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 key thing that's so difficult to do is you make other leaders. That's really tough, you know. You make them. You make a you identify and you make leaders. You you help leaders within your organization, you know, or within your team. You allow people to lead, and that actually is a a, a separate skill set because that that involves a certain amount of you can't be insecure correct and do that because correct. because the insecure person is like well i can't i have to always if i train yes. them then they're gonna it's so yes. you always have to you yes. always have to be okay with the fact not that threatened by not it. at all and 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 it's much easier to micromanage everybody likes to be control freaky you know or lots of people do you know they like to control at least their own environment um, I don't have enough fucking energy to micromanage people. I'm like, you know, I hired you. You probably know what you're I doing. I do. I have to be careful. <laughs> you do because yeah. I, I don't do anything where someone might die in an exploding van. Yeah. But uh, but it but I do but I do feel like you know I hire people for a reason, and mm. if they don't if they do, if they do something that's not right or they don't get it or the, the job isn't working out, that we can deal with that then. But yeah. I just I I hate leaning over someone, and I am kind of control freaky, but I hate leaning over someone showing me like, okay, no more to the. Oh, no, no, that. Oh, just let me do it. You know, such a yeah, it's it's such a critical thing. I think also is like you you have to be prepared to fail. You have to be willing to fail. I think. Yeah, I really do. That's I, even a weird word. Nobody like, wants to talk about that ever. You know, but it's like part of it is very much being prepared to go. Well, I'm going to take a huge risk here. 
Um, and we might fail. And we might fail. I'm going to swing, you know, because you're not going to hit the home run if you don't swing. And part of that swinging is you're going to miss sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate there's not a word that the word failure is associated with something not going exactly the way that you thought it would go. Yeah. Because most things are not failures. They're just kind of, uh, they're just lessons in like, well, don't do it that way. Yes. Do it a different way. You know, yes. I think that the idea that people have that, that life is so black and white that they're going to make one choice that's going to completely ruin them is, yes. is fa- usually fairly slim. Yes. Um, I mean, it's within true. reason, if you're not it's doing true. stupid things. But, you know, to take a calculated risk is, is, I feel like it's risky to not do that. Yeah, yeah. Do you like being just an actor in a movie or is that, does that drive no. you crazy? No. <laughs> no, I really don't. Because I imagine yeah. you probably get offered a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's 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 tough, you know. And more and more, I'm looking to do things where I have more more input because because it, it is tough. I can switch off that part of my brain, and I do. Uh, I, I do. You know, when I'm working, I have a, a thing that I do with directors, which is very much because I because I know the process needs a strong leader. You can't be fighting with your director as an actor. You know, in a tradition, certainly in a traditional film. Sure. In this case, it was very different. I was, I was a producer. It is different. But um, when you're doing a traditional movie, it's like I just like to set up a space where I'm like, dude, just be prepared to hear my ideas. Be pre- prepared to hear what I have to say. But I'm going to do what you ask. Right. You know, that changes it energetically from having to be when you're talking, the director's trying to think how he's going to convince you to do what he wants you to do. <laughs> you know, so you're in sort of some sort of creative war. It's that same thing in leadership again of kind of saying, listen – it's on you because the film is on you, dude, as a director. You know, sometimes when I've worked with directors, I'm like, and films that haven't gone right, you know, where I'm like, well, you know, I can go make District 10. You're going to be struggling. If it, you know, so I'm saying my bit. No, honestly. And it's like, it's like, that's what I think, but I will do it your way because you've got to have somebody that's leading. So you have to, I have to shut that side of me up. So as long as they'll just let me offer what I have to offer and then, you know, do, do with it what you will. It, it allows the director to really think about it and really absorb it because he knows he doesn't have to fight me. To get me to do the do it the way you want. Are you going to make District Ten? God, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Where do you think that story goes? Do you think we follow him and see what I, what he's doing? I, in I the, have in a the very good community? sense of where that goes, but you know, there's absolutely no way I would tell you what. Man. Not even a <laughs> no. Not, not even, even one? the slightest little hint. <laughs> <laughs> How about now? Okay, I thought if I waited a couple no. seconds, that you might change your mind. Yeah. Puppy dog eyes. Mm, no. Chalto. No. And All right. That, yeah. He's trying to wait it out now. He's just trying to stare me down. Listen, I, I already get the sense that you're someone that would win a staring contest. I have that side of my personality. Uh, I'm just happy to hear that it's even in your head. I'm just happy to hear that it's a thing that's possible because it, you know, it, it was such a great story. And yeah. I also, it's nice that it didn't get away from you and someone else made it and yes. they fucked it up. Like yes. if you have a, if you have been carrying this around in your head for yeah. a while, you probably have yeah. a pretty strong idea what it is. Yeah. Well, Neil has been carrying it around and he, you know, we've, we've spoken about things at length and you know, for various reasons, we didn't do it sooner. Um, mostly creative, mostly just that Neil is a real artist and doesn't really subscribe to traditional rules of Hollywood, you know, and yeah. just tries to as much as possible, make interesting things that he enjoys making and, if he makes money from it, great. If he doesn't, well, you know. How would you describe District Nine as someone? Is it a story about compassion, or is it a story about the the bad side of humanity, or prejudice, or what? How do you describe it? Uh, I I think it's a it's a 
for me nowadays if you ask me like there's this superficial selling versions of you know what you could say it's 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 exploring what it's like to step in somebody's shoes or you know ways like that but for me it's an exploration of uh race and uh, how that affects person race and, and 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 human personality it really is of like understanding uh I see the film and the way I played the character was very much because people were like, well, how are you going to make a guy who's racist, you know, who's then sort of likable by the end of the movie? And my answer was always, well, just honestly, like being as honest as I can with the deepest understanding that I have of human nature and how human beings behave with respect to cultural and racial differences and groups, you know, those different dynamics. And so, for example, the general westernized kind of media portrayed idea that has been sort of sold to everybody is everybody's the same. In South Africa growing up there, we learned that it was sort of – that's fundamentally incorrect in terms of how people behave. They naturally group by their own groups, be it race, religion, you know, little Italy, little China in a city, right. whatever it is. It's it's obvious that that's the case. People like Mandela – the reason we were able to do what we did in South Africa was, you know, his his fundamental thing was understanding that we off we it's going to take work for people that have radically different beliefs to function effectively together. Right. This is not the natural state. The natural state is you want to run off to your own group, and so I think that you know, uh, with with playing uh, Vickers was very much like this is going to be a story of a man who's conditioned by his personality to think and experience certain things. And as I pull away his conditioning, as I pull away his personality of what he thinks he is, so you raised in this place with you raised as a Muslim, you raised as a Christian, you raised as whatever, you know, that's what you've been conditioned with. If I remove all of that, if I remove your family and I remove your friends and I remove the culture that you live in and I remove the music you listen to and I remove everything that sort of you think is defining you as a personality, then what's left then? And that's the film. It's really about a guy who's stripped away with all of that. Um... So I had this belief that alone in the dark, people kind of know, well, I, I, I do – I would discriminate against – I wouldn't want to live with those creatures in my house. You know what I mean? Like at a certain level, that would be weird. For humans, it would be like, fuck, that's, that's a strange – that thing looks – I don't like that thing. Like don't have that near me. But over time, if you stripped away all your conditioning and he stripped his and you found that you were actually similar, then you could – engage each other as 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 humans i might bring up a film called enemy mine okay. starring dennis quaid okay and i never Gossett saw Jr. it i've heard so about good. it so many people mentioned that it, yeah i mean so I, many people mentioned that were, were in connection with district nine it's i still ex- haven't seen it I yeah really i mean you know it was basically uh it was it, it's just basically that kind of dances with wolves sort of an idea of like a stranger in a strange land uh embraces that that like they find common ground and then he beca- and then and then the cultures kind of meld. Yeah. Um but did you did you feel a particular sense of resonance from the film in South Africa? Did people see do you think they watched the film differently than other places because of that? It was radically differently perceived or or sort of uh, uh, received in South Africa to other places I saw it. For example, and for so many different reasons, though, not necessarily as deep. It was uh, you know, once Vickers comes on the screen in South Africa, the audience start laughing, right. literally. Like in, in, in when we watched that film with the Comic-Con audience the first time, that you could hear a pin drop. Like people were just quiet. It's, it was very serious for everybody. You know, and in South Africa, it's 
it's very funny to people sort of a, a lot of the way through. A lot of that's to do with just Vickers being a stereotype that they know and they find funny. Sure. And it's like – it's just like I can't believe this guy's in a Hollywood movie, like the guy from the <laughs> post office. The thing we're most embarrassed about, you know, they took him and put him in a Hollywood film. Like of all the South Africans they could have chosen, that's the guy. And that's the accent too, like that specific accent. It's like really – and it's just – it's, it was sort of endearing, I think, to a lot of South Africans. Yeah. It's, it's almost – I mean when I, when I first, saw, first saw Vickers come on screen, I imagine like there was probably a, a prequel series that was not unlike The Office starring that character. Yes, yes, yes. yes. When John, John Krasinski was uh, – when he cast me for, for The Hollers, which I have coming out soon, you know. He was like, dude, when we saw that, we were like, this is, this is like, he looks like he'd come off our show yeah. you know, in a sci-fi movie. Yeah. And they obviously improv a lot too. So it was, there was an immediate connection there. So it was cool to, to get to meet John and, and work with him on that film. Do, when you think about, and I'm not asking for plot points, but when you think about District 10, do you see it as a film or do you see it as like, oh, Netflix wants to do like an eight-part series? Like, would you do it as an extended series kind of a sequel or do you see it as a film? Here's the staring contest. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's not plot point. That's, that's just so, that's so fucking innovative that it's just sort of yeah, no, I just I just really have to shut up. It's just so fascinating. <laughs> I really am among my people. <laughs> I'm just a simple country fellow with a couple of microphones. I a don't guy, know. A guy asked me about a guy asked me, how do you you know what what do you think you what's what's your sort of support amongst the kind of geeks, you know? And I'm like, because I think I'm probably the only my, my my wife describes me as like a cool nerd. Yeah, you know, he's like he, she's like you. The and that's I guess that's what District Nine was. Like, I mean, I am a nerd. You made a performance matrix. Few, You're no, a but nerd. You know what I mean? The, the thing is, like, it, it is true. I was thinking about that the other day, and I'm like, because I, I have a very split personality. There's a lot of guys that play the nerdy or the crazy. You know, uh, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, or like my sort of heroes growing up. Sure. You know. Um, but then it's like then I also got to do like Kruger, you know, in mm-hmm. Elysium and stuff to have that sort of more, I don't know, violent <laughs> side. <laughs> you know? So it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, ner- 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 nerdy nerd is not superficial qualities. There are no. some superficial qualities that you can attribute to nerd folk, but it's yeah. ultimately the way that you process information and the way that you view the world. Mm. And I'm gonna and I I mean like I just I'm said definitely on the nerd side. You're of definitely that. creating performance <laughs> matrices matrices. With, in Excel spreadsheets with Excel a graph spreadsheet. that's printed and stuck on the trailer, you see? You name one other fucking <laughs> actor who's ever even opened Microsoft Excel <laughs> or Numbers if they're a Mac person. <laughs> there's, there's not. When I was making stuff in my company, we were building our own database systems <laughs> using Excel. Don't, yeah, don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's what you need to do. You should see my filing system on my PC. You know, oh my it's crazy. God. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course you are. Yeah. Do you? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I said to my wife, who now my girlfriend is, like, I'm not a nerd because she's like a swimwear model. You know, she was definitely one of the cool girls. You right. Know? I'm like, what do you mean I'm a nerd? She's like, no, I like nerds. Like, I like, I was like, fuck you, I'm not a nerd. And then I was like, the more I thought about it, I was like, fuck, I'm a nerd. Yeah, I am it's, a, a nerd. it's a badge and of honor. And then I embraced it. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck you. I am a nerd and I'm, I'm proud of it. Thank you. We rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't you couldn't do the things that you've done if you weren't. It would be it would be physiologically impossible. Yeah. So uh so Hardcore Henry is April eighth, is that correct? Um yes. and then what is there anything else you want to plug or throw out there? 
Well, I have, I have uh, two movies. One, uh, Free Fire, which was exec produced by Martin Scorsese, this incredible uh, British director called Ben Wheatley, mm-hmm. which is coming out, just got sold. We don't have a release date for it yet, but it's very exciting with Brie Larson, mm-hmm. Army oh, Hammer, amazing. Killian Murphy. Wow. Incredible cast. Um, I got to play one of my all-time favorite characters, uh, was was a 70s South African arms dealer with like a unique accent and just most awesomely fun character that I've ever done. And Ben let me go totally crazy on the improv again. So it's a fun, fun movie to watch. And uh, then something totally, totally different for me with, with The Hollers, which was uh, the John Krasinski yeah. director, John, uh, myself, uh, Anna Kendrick, uh, Richard Jenkins plays my dad, oh, amazing wow. actor, just phenomenal, and Margot Martindale, just an incredible cast and kind of a um, sort of dramatic comedy. You know, Sundance movie it was my first time going to Sundance. It wasn't normally my uh, my my kind of stuff, but it was so great to get to work with those kind of actors and do that kind of performance, which is a very, you know, for me, very subdued performance. Mar- Margot Martindale is one of those performers that I – I don't normally like to bother people in public, but we were at an awards show and she was a little ahead of me and I had to take a picture with her because she's so st- – she's such a stunning performer. Dude, her and Richard together like you were watching, there's very few times, basically never, that I've been intimidated by other actors. But just watching the two of them, I was like, holy shit, I hope I'm this good one day when I'm, you know, when I'm in the I hope people, part of my I career. I hope people really listen. I mean that kind of interdisciplinary study – of learn this, master, learn this, learn this, learn this, even if it doesn't seem like it's directly involved with the thing that you set out to do necessarily. Mm-hmm. But just hearing you talk about how you've achieved success through this, this interdisciplinary study, I think is so important for people because it sounds like that's why you're not intimidated by the performers because you do like nine other things that you can do that you've learned, then you're not just defined by that one thing. Partly, yes. I guess it makes you comfortable in the situation, you know, to, to a certain degree that, that you have the tools to deal with the uncertainty and the challenges that are always there. Yeah. Uh, as, we're, as we're kind of uh, winding down here, we've almost, this has almost been an hour. Um, uh, is, is there any kind of parting... Is there any kind of parting words you have for people or parting advice that you might have for someone who you feel like might have been in your position? Now, of course, that's the power of the Internet. But, you know, how do you push through? I always ask people, how do you push through the wall? Like when you feel like I'm up against the wall, it doesn't feel like I'm going to get through this. How do you? I think certainly when I was young, I'm always wary of giving advice to people because I was. I think most people who succeed are kind of so fucking opinionated to start with <laughs> that they that they're just going to drive through and do it. But what I do relate to, and what I did relate to then, was I was always looking for inspiration. I wanted to hear people's stories. I wanted to hear people talk about how they did things, or you know why they did it, or to give me information, to give me things that like yes, I'll take that from you. I'll take that from this leader. I'll read you know. Uh, Richard Branson's book and see yeah. see what what was his story. I read that too. Think something I could take. You know what I mean? It's like I read everything I could, man. I would read biographies of like actors that succeeded and everything, um, and and to to take whatever inspiration you could, whatever resonates with you. When you've listened like to an interview like this, you're like, yeah, that makes sense to me. That's what I would do. You know. So and part of my story of what you said, you know, the, the keeping going was accepting that at times you are going to be broken. At times you are going to just think like, I am just fucked, you mm-hmm. know, and, and this is just completely fucked up. And you, literally I had times where I was, you know, lying on a bathroom floor, just sobbing my eyes out, just going like, fuck, none of this is going to work. Back in the TV station days, you know, it took us five years to try to do it. And, 
and just that sense of but i think if you have a passion if you have something that is so important you know something that you are so passionate about it's the passion for the thing that you choose to do that keeps you going through for me it was you know that keep kept me going through that and through the criticism and through the um the challenges and the failures you keep going to that part of yourself that to be honest, if it's if you're really aligned, I think with things. Not to get too deep on it, but it's almost it isn't from you really. If you look at really people in their masterful places, it's not really you. You're tapping into something. You watch a sportsman do something. You watch a great artist. You, you know, when they're in the zone, as you call it, it's almost like their ego, their personality's out of the way. The fears, the whatever. You're just getting in there. You find the thing that you know how to do, and you do it. Uh, acting was like that for me very much, you know, improv acting specifically. It's like you just – got to shut everything up, your spreadsheets and all the stuff you try to do and all the strategy you did. So you're relying on something greater than yourself, you know, that's calling you to – to pushing you to do the thing. If it's just your ego and you want to be famous and you just – you know, then I, I don't know how to right. address that. But if you have some true calling in you, that thing can help you through sometimes when your own – egoic sense of yourself isn't strong enough you know and gets crushed as it's going to sure i I mean when i see stories like the robin williams was tragic for me he's he's probably you know my all-time favorite actor until when when i saw that that guy uh was in various interviews after he died and information that came out that that how painful it was for example people criticize you know one of the things he said was whenever you start to feel too good about yourself there's this thing called the internet right um when robin williams was vulnerable to that and i was like this is robin fucking williams you know who's who's feeling beaten down by people bitching and you know by not everything he's ever done being as as phenomenal as most of his work was um that was actually an important thing for me where I kind of said, protect yourself, you know, protect yourself from when you're opening your heart like that and you're putting your work out there. Just make sure that there's a side of you that's like, okay, yeah, you can write shit, you can do whatever. But it's as an actor, it's, it's I suppose, helpful that I have that Kruger side of me, which I really do have, yeah. which is like, fuck you, man, you know, because sometimes the softer people, the artists do get crushed, you know, well, it's in the case to a certain degree. For whatever to, you know, uh, Robin was dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot some of it, outside forces, to some degree, you know, contributed to crushing the guy. I think. I think it's also just important not to. As I get older, I kind of make these distinctions between: am I making healthy choices or am I making ego choices? Yes, and ego choices are very rarely the best choices that yes. you can make they're the one they're the ones that get you to react emotionally and you know they're the ones that get you to pursue things that aren't good for you because you're just trying to yeah yes. i'm gonna show this thing you know so i really try to i really and i'm not great at it but i really do try to make the distinction between healthy choices and ego choices it is so hard sometimes it I is think, so to make hard the distinction <laughs> and it's but it is so important as what i was trying to say before where you watch real masters at work I remember Michael Jackson was one of my early entertainment heroes as a teenager. And he was interesting because his was so obvious. It was so obvious that when the guy was on stage, I mean, he was almost a different being mm-hmm. to then when he was when he was back in Michael, you know, yeah. when his ego was there. And you see that in different incarnations. You see it with athletes, you know, being in the zone, doing something amazing. And then as soon as they've done it, then the ego gets in. Yeah, I'm the fucking man. It's like, not really. You were just born <laughs> with a gift to do what you just did. And it was amazing watching you then, you know, and now it's gone. Now your ego's back. 
Literally, you can watch it with sportsmen. You can watch it on the field. You know, there's no ego, no ego, no ego. Amazing, and then there's just all ego. Sure. You know, and and it's so difficult to stay to know where that line is. Like, you think it's you. You know, you're like, yes, I'm fucking amazing, aren't I? I made that happen. I think and it's like, well, not kinda. really. <laughs> you know, it's you were gifted with certain things here, and it's 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 a it's a it's a very interesting place to navigate for me. I think some of it also has to do with. You know, that kind of when you're on stage or when you're on a field or when you're in peak performance mode yes. and you're in that zone, um, you then you go back to your regular life and you're mm. not like being outside the zone. Yes, you can't live in got, the world like yeah, that. Yeah, it's got to feel it's got to be such a letdown from, you know, feeling that and getting those chemicals and, you know, feeling that and then just like, well, I, I guess I'll just make a sandwich. You know, it's like, how, yeah. do, you, how do you live a normal life when. There's so much kind of false heightened reality yes. that you're experiencing. And this sort of – this thing that you get to tap into, you know, this powerful thing that you get to tap into when you're doing that work. Yeah. You know, well, uh, in that zone as it were. I am so – it was so wonderful to talk to you and I, I really hope that the next time you have something that you're – you honestly could just come on and talk about nothing if you wanted to <laughs> the next time you're around. <laughs> Thanks so much. Man. I'm so really... excited to have you here, and I've um, been a huge fan of yours since I saw you in District Nine. And uh, Hardcore Henry comes out on the eighth. And um, do you have dates for the other for the other films? Do we? Oh, my films. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant. Oh, sorry, other territories, other countries. No. Uh, no, no, not yet. When for does Hardcore Fire... Henry come out in Vietnam? Uh, in, yeah, yeah. Do you have an answer? Oh, London? Shit. No, Sorry. it doesn't know. It does come out there. Um, you know, this studio... I don't have for Free Fire and the Hollers. There they, they aren't dates yet, but they are coming out. This company, STX, has released a lot of really great movies. Like, I'm Gift so excited about great, these guys. But it really, it really feels like there's this kind of... Um, this pod of... You know, actor, writer, director, oh. creators that they sort of. You I know. couldn't be happier, man. That STX and, and I met uh, Adam Fogelson for the first time the other night. I had a chat with him. I was just like, please, please, God, make this thing work. Let's, let's, you know, just let creative people support these guys. And we need it. You know, we need it. Yeah. We need a studio like this. Are you on social media at all? I am, and I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm doing it more now. I I I wasn't. That Is it just much at past, Shalto doing, Copley? Just at Shalto. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure. Cool. Uh, we normally end the podcast by telling people, enjoy your burrito. It just means enjoy your present as you're experiencing it. You have a far superior accent to mine, and I, without putting you on the spot, would you take us out that way? Just all you have to say is enjoy your burrito. Enjoy your burrito. It sounds so much better. My voice is dumb. <laughs> I wish I had a cool... What does our accent sound like to you? Are you going to – is this that – like when I, I once came to uh, – when I was 11, 1985, my family spent eight months in Canada, three months in San Diego, and I went to school here. And I remember one of the first things a girl saying to me, oh, my God, I love your accent. I wish I had an accent. <laughs> and I'm I like – I had the exact same – Wow. My parents moved to Arkansas when I was like, like nine for six months. And I just talk the way I talk now, yeah. and we'd go through drive-thrus, and they go, "Where are you from? You have an accent." And we're like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" My parents are like, "Are you fucking kidding?" <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't hear your own thing, but I, I just find I just feel like the American accent is so harsh and not melodic in any way, and it's so really. Just, I, I think it's the opposite. I mean, it depends. It depends who's delivering it to some degree. It depends a, on the register. It's a Germanic, the you know. It's like our, 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 think so. It's yeah, because our our. It, it's it's like 
Brit- British uh, British linguistics, but sort of run through the Dutch filter, and I th- I think like the resulting sound is a very kind of harsh, you know, fuck man, like it's such a god damn it, like it's it's such a it's such. A, but you see the way you're doing it now. That's the register. That's that's, true. that's giving it a hard edge. God damn it, man. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.